Live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show this evening. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Water Zone. I'm Rob Starr, along with our Wizard of Hydraulics, Mr. Chris Davey. And uh, hope everybody's having a good day. Chris, how are you doing out there, buddy? I appreciate it, Rob. Thanks very much. Uh, we're doing okay. You know, right in the beginning day or so of a 10-day-long uh, heat wave here in uh, the southwest with temperatures in the mid to upper teens. So, boy, oh, boy, you know, get the ice cubes out. <laughs> well, welcome, welcome to my life out here in Arizona. The same thing, buddy. It's pretty, it's pretty hot. But it's uh, a dry heat. Yes, it is. And there's our uh, wonderful Miss Chris Austin, who is the purveyor and wonderful person who runs Maven's Notebook, and she is the know-all for everything in water in California. So, Chris, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing okay. We're hot up here, but not as hot as they all are down there in in Southern California. So, or Arizona. <laughs> You know, it's just 105 here. Oh, it was 112 here today, and it, and what's interesting, it gets warmer after three o'clock here. The other night, when we, uh, my wife and I went to bed, it was 98 degrees at 11 o'clock at night. Oh, so, little, little, little warm, <laughs> a little warm, but all in all, everything is good. So, uh, tell us what's brewing on the uh, West Coast in California with water. Lots of stuff happening this week. Oh, yeah, yeah, and a lot of stuff last week, too. It was, it's been pretty active. I guess um, one thing uh, that's interesting to point out is that the uh, uh, FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, approved the final um, environmental impact statement for removing the Klamath Dam, and so they're now behind, totally behind the Klamath Dam removal effort. So I don't, I think that they have jumped all the hoops on that and they're going to be ready to take those dams out. Maybe even this, uh, maybe even this winter. I think they were trying to do it last winter, but they didn't have all the permits required. Um, of course, part of the, their plan for removing those dams was to uh, punch a hole in them, um, all four of them, to let the water through and then hope that they get some really good intense storms that will like kind of finish the job of taking down those dams. Um, but we'll have to see what kind of hydrology we have next year because, uh, you know, the, the folks that look at these things, uh, you know, are saying that it doesn't look like it's going to be any different than it was this year. Um, going to likely be dry. Now, we'll see if we get the big atmospheric rivers in the fall like we did last year, but they're not thinking that we're going to have a wet, wet year next year. So we'll see. So, so what's going to happen when they all come down? What's going to happen with the land? Oh, um, they're, then they're, they have a whole program to be restoring the basin and, and the land that was underneath the reservoirs. Uh, you know, it's gonna take uh it's gonna take a while, but they have a whole 
They've been developing plans to kind of change. Uh, you know, well, a lot of things are going to be changing, and there'll be different access to the river now. Um, so they're, they're really working forward, uh, looking forward to it. Um, I think, you know, there are still people that don't want those dams to come down. But I think the main concern now really is um, just the homeowners that live around the reservoirs that are no longer going to be there and how that's going to impact their land values. I do believe that they solved the tax problem with Siskiyou County. Um, so, you know, the the proponents of taking down the dams have worked hard to kind of appease all the opposition that they can, um, you know, and just sort of to solidify why these, you know, the dams that want to come down is uh, Pacific Corps owns the dams and, you know, those dams are located remotely on the Klamath River and have power lines that go back. Uh, take the power into the metropolitan areas, areas. and uh, I think a week or two ago, one of those lines sparked a fire, and so now there's a lawsuit pending against Pacific Corps for, you know, the fire damages, which I think is just one more reason why they're, they want to just get rid of that whole system. So, so we'll see. Um, looks like it's going to be good heading forward. And Chris, that's kind of that's a little bit related as well to, um, you know, an article that was on the Daily Digest here about uh, rewilding California farms, right? Because you were talking about reclamation of the basin behind the dams, you know, and how to how to get that back to where it was uh, in its natural state. So there's been a lot, as you know, more than anyone probably in the Central California uh, Valley. There's been just a you know a ton of those farms that have just been parched, right? And so they're just kind of just sitting there right now. And isn't there a isn't there a plan to kind of rewild, if you will, those those farms? Yeah, um, you know, one of the things that we all recognize with the implementation of the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act now, uh, bringing you know for the first time requiring groundwater basins and in California to be balanced, kind of like your checkbook, what goes in and what comes out need to kind of be, you know, <laughs> maintained. Uh, and so, you know, there's wide recognition that with the implementation of that, of that legislation, that uh, a lot of land's going to have to come out of production. Uh, just for Sigma alone, uh, Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, we call it SIGMA. But just for that alone, they're saying 20%, uh, one in five acres at least, will have to be fallowed. Now, when you, you just can't stop farming land, because then you have a, a dust lot, and that can, you know, the wind can come up and blow the dirt around, and particulate matter in the air is a big deal in the Central Valley. So you don't want the dust kicking up the the wind. You don't want uh, you know it to become a weed a lot with a bunch of weeds. So they need they're trying to figure out what they're going to do with all this farmland that's being taken out of production. And there's a lot of options like solar panels is one, habitat is another. Um, maybe it can be a park. 
you know, maybe there are other uses. So the state has a plan. They funded this plan. Um, and the money that they, that they give for this plan doesn't directly go to the farmer. So if a farmer wants to put in solar, uh, solar panels, they, they don't write them a check. Um, and generally, if someone wants to come and install solar panels on the land, there's an economic basis for that. They shouldn't really need state funding. Um, but, you know, what's important is that uh, people want to see that this land gets retired, uh, fallowed in a way that makes sense. Like, if you're going to do habitat, um, it's important that you kind of put together enough habitat that you know, so it's, it's a, you know, good-sized area with connectivity to other habitats um, so that there's a place for the critters to go. Um, you don't want a bunch of postage stamp habitat projects, you know, throughout the the valley right. that are small and, and not right. coordinated and connect to nothing of use. So, so you know, there, so the money is to uh, develop plans to follow this land in a way that makes sense. Um, and it's the first, you know, uh, rollout of the funds, I believe. Um, so we'll, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. It's definitely a big issue in the Central Valley, what they're going to do uh, with all these lands. And I should also say that uh, there's also, I mean, it's 20% uh, land that'll have to be followed because of stigma, but there's other uh, regulatory processes brewing that that will likely mean that uh, there will be more acreage that will have to be fallowed beyond uh, just what's required for groundwater management. So, so staying on the subject of drought for just a quick second and the label we put on it, right? So I read on the website on the maybe Noble website today. I mean, we've been we've been naming this drought, you know, once in a hundred years kind of a thing. But I've seen several reports now where they're calling it, you know, not once in a century, but once in a millennium, kind of once in a thousand year um, drought. Uh, man, that's, that is, that's saying something. I mean, you know, that, that is 50 generations kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, they, they figure this stuff out by uh, looking at tree rings. Uh, they can count the tree rings and, and how big of a tree ring there is for each year kind of indicates how, you know, what the conditions were like while that tree was growing. And they have found out that, you know, California has had a very long and deep drought lasting, you know, 1,200 years or more. Um, and we should, you know, these are droughts where the conditions are generally dry, but it doesn't mean that there was never any rain. Like some, you know, there would be wet years in the middle of all these dry years, such that, you know, people are saying, you know, it's we, we probably didn't ever really come out of that drought that started in the 2014. Um, it's, we just had a wet year that will, that just punctuated it. but. Uh, you know, it's probably still the same drought. And it's, you know, we're still, we're, we're not out of it yet, not anywhere near. Uh, you know, well, Australia has a 
has a, a a climate similar to ours, and they had they they used to have droughts in three to four year cycles, sort of like we did, and they had their millennium drought. It lasted for twelve years, and then when when it stopped, they they had major flooding, and people you know were killed because of the flooding. And that's kind of, you know, how it goes for us, too. It can be really, really dry, and then it can be really, really wet. Um, well, you know, I had read that, um, you know, they want to do a test to cover the aqueducts with solar panels, and you were talking about solar fields and things of that sort. But I had, I had read a couple of weeks back, and I may have mentioned it on one of our past shows, that when you put a, a, a two-by-six-foot solar panel on a roof or somewhere else, it, it heats up the air above it 30-something degrees. So I guess I, I don't know who to ask. I'd, I'd be interested to find out with all these solar farms. Just, you know, they read the one that's out, out towards Palm Springs or uh, not Palm Springs, I'm sorry, uh, to uh, Vegas. You know, they have that one that oh. says when the birds fly by, they get zapped. It's like oh, going okay. to microwave. So isn't that going to be, I, I wonder, is it, if everybody goes to solar, and, and and the solar panels heat heat the air thirty six degrees higher than what the temperature is. Isn't that going to cause a problem? I don't know. Yeah, I I don't know. I, I I haven't heard that. That doesn't mean that it's not true. I'm just saying I I haven't heard it. But what's interesting, you talk about the ones out on the way to Las Vegas, and those are different than the solar panels that you might have on your house or that you see in farms where they're all just kind of out in a line um that that one in uh the ones out in the desert are are actually and they actually have one like it out in palm springs too what they do is you know i mean the regular solar panels uh they're they're great when the sun is is shining but when the sun goes down the panels stop working so Somebody said, well, okay, we got to figure out how can we keep these panels working after dark. And so what they do out in the type of solar panel place out in Las Vegas is they take all these solar panels and they aim it at this tower. And in the tower is this molten this, salt. Yeah, 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 right. yeah. It looks like a giant beam shining down on the... Yeah, panel. yeah. They're all they're all like and and they might even rotate a bit to catch the sun, but they're all they're all focused at heating up the the salt and which then provides the heat that will keep the turbine running after the sun goes down. Uh, but when you look at it, when you drive by, you can actually see the white, you know, the the all the solar panels are pointing at this the top of this thing, and you can see like streams of light to yes. it. I mean, it's it's like so. Yeah, if you're a bird and you happen to fly into that, you're done. You're toast. Yes. <laughs> you know, you're probably won't even hit the ground. You'd probably be vaporized. I mean, yeah. it, it must be terrible for wildlife. And I can see that that yes, that must heat up the air. I I don't know if um, I mean I I I can't answer if you know the air degrees above the solar panels on on top of our roof is thirty degrees hotter. I don't know. Maybe it is. You know, we have a theory that also the fact that they shade our roof 
keeps it kind of cooler inside the house too. But I don't know. That's just our theory. No, good, good point. I'm going to go research that a little more and find out. Maybe have some information for next week. That I've heard that story and I've read some of that in a couple of places. And you know, I, I don't always believe everything I read on the internet, but you never know. <laughs> but I want, but I do want, I do want to check that out. But I, but. But as I said, I understand they, they're going to do a test by putting, uh, they're going to cover the aqua decks with uh, solar panels, I hear. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is interesting. Um, a number of educational institutions have studied this possibility, and, I, and they have implemented this in other parts of the world. And, I mean, it's an interesting idea. We can use this the panels to generate electricity and also shade the water so maybe it doesn't evaporate as much. Although no one's ever, uh, I mean, they. I think they say the evaporation is about 4% out of the aqueduct, so I don't know. Um, although that may be changing, of course, with the hotter temperatures. Um, but at any rate, We'll we'll see. There, it's a pilot project. They're going to try it out in the Turlock Irrigation District, and and they'll see if it works. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts to that project. You know, like how you're going to get underneath to do maintenance, and and you have to string all these things together. I mean, yep. that's the other part of solar projects. We all love solar energy, but nobody wants those power lines running by their house. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> That that is true. So, you know, there's also a thing that you had posted about uh, what they call uh, harmful algae blooms in the Delta, and that's oh, the, yeah. that's and not only in the Delta in California, but I mean it's going all over the country now, all over the world. It's, yeah, and, and and this was forecast about four or five years ago. They said this is going to become a problem, and it sure has. Hotter temperatures. Um, you know, lower flows means you know algae grows in the in the rivers, and it's it's just all over. Even in Lake Tahoe, they have they're having algae blooms. I mean, it's just um, it's immense, and we're not still not really well organized to deal with with them, and we really don't know how to address them in order to keep them from happening yet. Um, you know, part of the issue, in a sense, is you know it's uh, it's nitrites, nitrates going into the going into the water. You get a lot of that from ag runoff. Um, yeah. You get a lot of it from wastewater, and uh, you know, kind of uh, you know, like we have this American fad now of the keto diet, which is a high protein diet. But when, when you eat a high-protein diet, you tend to excrete a lot more nitrates. And nitrate cleanup in wastewater is very expensive and very few wastewater treatments clean it up. So in a sense, our high-protein diet is contributing to the, uh, the algae blooms that we're experiencing in our waterways. And it's, it's a very difficult project. Well, I, I'm telling you, I'm doing my part not to eat keto diets. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Yeah, you know, it's a good time to start thinking about, you know, next generation eating, I suppose, because uh, because of the drought, it's really hitting ranchers very hard. 
and they, they've been selling a lot of their stock off because they can't feed them and they can't water them. Uh, and that is means, you know, that there's a bit of a glut of meat that, that we're going to see here for the next couple weeks. And then it's pro- beef is probably going to get pretty darn expensive. It's pretty uh, darn expensive now. I know. <laughs> I know it's like yeah. you want a steak dinner, you gotta, you know, cash in a four hundred one k. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Rob, I got a question for you, buddy, because you've been think, you know, you're one for those radical kind of approaches to solving problems and things like that, right? Including, including um, the discussion we had last week on the on the um, Inflation Reduction Act, right? And the, the thing in there. About the big pipeline coming from the Mississippi, coming out to the Colorado Basin, and kind of doing right. doing that. So Chris Austin uh, made the notebook standpoint looking looking at that. I saw that Governor Newsom um, kind of was talking about that a little bit, mentioned it in a couple of different times, a couple of different places. Um, you know, what's your what's your thoughts, or Rob, what's your thoughts? Well, we had uh, a candidate running for U.S. Senator here, Jim Lehman, uh, for Arizona, and that was that was the plan that he had. And everybody, I, I, I guess I'll say it on the political political different sides, <laughs> uh, since he was a, a Republican conservative, they didn't want to agree with whatever he said. He said that was a, a silly idea and so forth and so on. But then, as you said, Newsom has been mentioning it now and, and again. So I don't know. I think I think you know Chris Austin always says you know. Everybody should come to a meeting and put everything on the table so everybody hears everybody's side and they and listen to what everybody has to say because there are so many good ideas that could that could happen. I mean, even even in the latest thing of uh, of, of her, her her blog, it talks about people who have ideas to do certain things and 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 uh, you know people should listen to them, you know, uh, because there's so many opportunities that we can do. For example, they want to use do something with the brine from desalination. That was one of the the articles that, that, that uh, Chris Austin had in her, in her paper today, and those are important things to look at. And people always always jump to no, it's not a good side because you you vote this way. It shouldn't have anything to do with politics. It should have to do with science and and how do we extend life and everything else. That's the way I, I believe it should be. But uh, I, I I think we should do that. I mean, look, it snows a lot on the East Coast. What happens with all the snow? It melts. Where does it go? Not to here, but it should. It could. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I guess I'm not a fan of the of those kinds of big engineering thinking. Um, I while we certainly could do such a thing, I think that uh, the opposition and the cost of it would be would be overwhelming. Um, in terms of a pipeline from the Mississippi, I think it's a bit of a pipe dream, I guess. Uh, I think we need to stop looking uh, uh, to in the distance to solve our water problems here in California. Um, I think we do need to consider desalination, and I do think that there are technologies that are that are coming online slowly that can address the energy issues, address the brine discharge, and that's huge. And there are people that are trying to figure out what to do with that brine discharge. Um, They've got pilot projects and things. I don't think they've been able to scale up anything yet. But, I mean, certainly I will say 
we once thought of sewage as a waste stream, and now it's you know, we look at it much differently. Now we recycle it and we clean it up, and we can certainly look at brine discharges that way too. But I don't think the technology is quite arrived yet. But I do think we need to push in that direction. Sure. Yeah. I just see I just see a lot of companies, startup companies, with some really neat technology. Yes, they need funding to go further and stuff. But and 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 I give a lot of credit to universities around the world who, who do projects and things like that to come up with ideas. And, but I think that needs to happen. I I agree with you. There's long-term pro- projects. But look at California, pick the Delta. Look, look how many years we're talking about that. And nothing can get solved in a day or a week or a month, no matter what it is. And and I, I just think we should look at alternatives. You know, it's just like that guy, and I haven't followed up with the guy that we had on a couple of years ago, but I always make fun of the water train. And I wonder how his business is going. I really need to check that out because I thought that was a slick idea when he bought 140 rail cars, tanker. Uh, 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 trains and moved water all over the country. And then I heard he expanded the business a couple of years ago. But I'd like to know how that's doing because it's one way of delivering water to people. You know, the big story uh, this week uh, about water, you know, we had on a couple of weeks uh, a story about Jackson, Mississippi, and how that city is not getting any water. And then they just had a, a famous football player, Deion Sanders, uh, come on uh, on the news. And he was talking about that he lives there, saying, they get water. Deli- they get water through their pipes once a week. Yeah, once it's bad at there. And yeah, have, yeah, and and I mean, we have so many problems all over the country and all over the world. But just think, even the U.S., we got to solve those problems. And and a lot of them are, like you said, they're not a a one year issue. They could take ten years. But if we never start them, we never get fixed. I don't know. I, that's why I always uh, want to know what the priority is. That's and I'm I'm just kind of silly and crazy here on my end, but that's that's what I believe. <clears throat> well, we won't make any more comments to that, Rob. But hey, let's close with this, Chris, because I don't know if you've got if you've seen these new signs up in up in Central or Northern California where you're at. But down here, several of the water agencies are adopt, adopting this new motto that uh, and putting it on signs, billboards, and stuff like that. The tagline essentially says, "Quote without a doubt." We're in a drought. Have you seen those up there? Uh, no, no, but uh, but you're definitely right. Definitely right. No doubt. I like that. Uh, Mr. Davey, my mom had me tested. I'm not crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Good for you, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm other things, but not crazy. <laughs> Anyhow. No, we we appreciate that, and 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 you know, Chris, like Chris Austin always says, people should come to meetings and and and, and work together and to help to solve problems instead of the fights and stuff. And that's that's what I want to see happen. We don't, get any, we don't get any, we don't get anywhere fighting. Yeah, yeah. I'm so. just going to say, Chris, that I think those signs are <clears throat> are uh, becoming more prevalent, being adopted by all the water agencies here because there are still so many people kind of in the state of denial about the drought not complying there are still heavy water users and things like that so this is sort oh, of yeah a, this, yeah this is sort of a program or or some um outreach public relations to try and convince those laggers that uh, aren't quite convinced that uh, that the drought we're experiencing is uh, a real world issue 
Oh yeah, sure is. And and they have the mandatory no outdoor watering period coming up while they fix that pipeline in, in Southern California. That's going to be a tough time for folks. Well, when the water police come out, they'll uh, they'll stop doing it. <laughs> so, so, uh, I've seen them. Uh, they look kind of crazy in those little drip outfits, but you know, drop outfits. <laughs> well. Chris, it's uh, coming up time for our uh, commercial break, and we do appreciate everything that you bring to the table, and, and, and especially what you put out in your uh, newsletter every day. And we, we appreciate it. I certainly do. Uh, Chris and I both, Chris Sadie and I, get it every single morning. So we want to thank you for coming on, and I know you'll be back next week with some more hot topics of what's happening in the world of water in California. So, Chris, thank you again for joining us. We appreciate it. All right. Good evening, everybody. Good evening. Have a great week, Chris. And for our listeners, go to www.mavensnotebook.com, become a subscriber, become a sponsor. It's a great way to to, uh, to get the water news. So we're going to take a little break and uh, uh, take our commercial break, and we'll be back in just a moment with the second half. We have a good, uh, good featured guest for you, so stick around. KCAA Loma Linda, 1050 AM, 106.5 FM, and now 102.3 FM. customers it's a full-time job want an easy way to make them happy try having your ornamentals delivered straight to the job site with nursery direct could save you and your clients a pretty peony think about it instead of driving to the nearest nursery picking up the order and then driving to the job site the crew is able to begin work right away that cuts time and labor savings you can pass on to your customers and you can get your plants delivered direct even if you don't have a nursery branch in your area Here's another quick tip. Keep a substitutions list on standby for every project so your team knows what to do in case a plant isn't in stock because there's nothing customers appreciate more than a project that finishes on time and on budget. They love you. They really love you. Aww. Are you presently part of the irrigation industry as a worker or business owner? Do you want to learn how you and your staff can boost your knowledge and productivity? then you should check out Irrigator Technical Training School. Irrigator Tech is the leading source of quality instruction serving all facets of the irrigation industry. Their courses provide a basic, easy to understand approach that raises the skill level, competency, and professionalism of landscape and irrigation personnel through practical education and services. Irrigator Tech combines classroom and real life hands-on training leading to a well-recognized certification that both customers and employers demand. Irrigator Tech specialized courses can help you quickly become a certified irrigation auditor or a certified installer, repair, maintenance, or backflow technician. Courses also include certificates in smart water application or becoming a certified tree worker. Most importantly, all certifications are state recognized and Irrigator Tech offers annual renewal classes to help keep your certification up to date. So whether you work in California, Washington, Oregon, Nevada, or Arizona, there's an Irrigator Tech class near you. For more information on how to jumpstart your career, call Irrigator Tech toll-free 866-614-1755 or visit them on the web at irrigatortech.com. That's toll-free 866-614-1755 and on the web at irrigatortech.com. 
All right, uh, welcome back to the second half of the Water Zone with Chris Davey and myself, Rob Starr. Hope everybody's having a great afternoon. And uh, we got an interesting uh, guest, two of them. Uh, one is a, f- a good friend of ours, and uh, uh, he's going to come on and, and talk about uh, a strange problem that they have with water in California and how it's costing the state $8 billion. So I'm going to turn it over to our friend, uh, Mr. Travis Loop, and he's going to bring in the CEO of. Uh, uh, dig deep, and uh, it's a pretty interesting conversation, so take it away. A new report finds that allowing millions of Americans to live without running water or a toilet at home is costing the U.S. economy over $8.5 billion a year. The biggest impacts to the GDP come from lost productivity, time lost at work or school to access water, physical health impacts, water purchase costs, and mental health impacts. George McGraw, CEO and founder of Dig Deep, discusses the report and how closing the water gap would generate $200 billion over the next 50 years. George also talks about recommendations to treat the water access gap as a crisis, refocusing federal funding, and building a domestic wash sector. Here with George McGraw, founder and CEO of Dig Deep, which is a human rights nonprofit uh, focused on water. Uh, George, how are you doing? I've been well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Happy to talk to you again. Yeah, uh, thank you. Yeah, you guys got some big news to, to share. Um, before we kind of get to your news, um, I wanted you just to explain for people that might not be aware how many people in the United States lack running water or a toilet? 2.2 million, at least. I think, you know, when most people think of places without running water, it's like, you know, a village in sub-Saharan Africa pops in their mind. But little did they know that these folks are living right here in the U.S. in all 50 states. Mm. What are some of the, I guess, the main communities where, you know, these, these, pe- these people live? Yeah, well, it's like I said, all 50 states, it's urban and it's rural. There are definitely some hot spots. Um, mm. Some of the places we visited in our 2019 study, Closing the Water Gap in the U.S., were like the U.S.-Mexico border region in Texas, Appalachia, um, some native reservations of the Deep South, like the Navajo Nation, the Central Valley of California, um, just to name a few. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, but like you said, they're they're everywhere, and I don't think people really realize uh, that there's this many people in the United States in the year 2022 that don't have running water or a toilet. They they definitely Are think of that the- international crisis. Absolutely. And the crazy thing is that that number is going up. We had to look at, you know, the new census estimates for 2020 when we were putting together this latest economic impact study. And um, I think, you know, really discouraged to see the numbers of people without running water increasing pretty steadily. Um, Mm -hmm. Not a huge amount, but you'd really expect that number to be going down, especially since in 2016, we stopped asking people if they had a flush toilet anymore. Um, but no, we're, we're seeing we're seeing a rise. I think probably fueled by climate change and and the breakdown of existing infrastructure that just hasn't been invested in in so long. Yeah, and you know the the cost of living just continues to rise. Uh, the pressures on households, right, to make ends meet, and water's part of that. And so, I mean, maybe there maybe there's a factor there too with just kind of the the economic situation in this country that might be just tough on people. 
Yeah, I mean, if you're anything like me, you're driving down the street every day and your eyes are flicking up at every gas station sign wondering, <laughs> you know, what's it going to look like today? I mean, I'm checking the prices on my cereal at the grocery store. And, you know, for the families that we work with over at Dig Deep, they were already, you know, really aware of consumer prices and, and fluctuations and things like inflation impact them the most because they're already spending sometimes a third or a half of their monthly budget at home on water. And that's, you know, that's on packaged water at the store, that's on the gas or the vehicle wear and tear or the time that it takes them to go collect that water. So even a little fluctuation in the market has a big impact for these folks. They're really feeling the pinch right now. Yeah. Well, speaking of, of dollars, uh, this new report you have looks at the economic cost of, of having 2.2 million people in the U.S. without running water or a toilet. So what's, what's the big bottom line? What did you guys find? We found that the U.S. economy is basically bleeding about $8.58 billion a year that this gap remains open every year. Um, and that, that equates to about $15,800 per household. And that number is modest because it really only counts 1.57 million of that 2.2 um, numbers that we were sure we had for folks in occupied households in the U.S. So the real number is probably much larger, but we know at least that the U.S. economy is losing that $8.58 billion every year. Um, and, you know, we had to count up all the different sort of economic losses um, that add up to that $8.58 billion, which was a really interesting journey. Yeah, that was my question. $8.5 billion that this economy is losing a year, uh, that's a significant amount. Could you break that pie down a little bit? What's, what do you mean that the economy is losing that? What's, what's the economic toll? Well, you can imagine like water really underpins your whole life, right? It's your ability to go to work. It's your ability to go to school. It's your ability to stay home and, and play with your kids sometimes. It's your ability to stay out of the hospital and, and keep away from medical bills. People without running water also have to spend a ton of money uh, collecting water. Like I said, buying bottled water at the store, paying for gas to haul water sometimes 20, 50 miles away from their home. Um, so we looked at all of those costs on a household basis and then looked at the costs to a community and to the greater economy and tried to total that all up. So we looked at lost time at a job or at school from hauling water. We looked at, we looked at lost productivity um, in GDP because, of course, every dollar you earn, you then spend in the local economy and that creates more wealth. And so if you pull those original dollars out of the economy, you're creating less economic benefit over time. Uh, we looked at uh, how many cases of disease or mental illness this causes. We estimate that just, just for the people in the water gap, this is causing 219,000 cases of waterborne disease a year. It's causing um, just 39,000 cases of diabetes. It's causing 71,000 cases of mental health issues like acute depression or anxiety. All of these things have a price tag and they add up to 8.58 billion a year. Mm. Incredible. Uh, the ripple effect, right? I don't, people don't realize how water, like you said, permeates everything. It underpins everything when you don't have it, when you don't have proper access. It's just like the ripples keep going outward on your life, on the community around you, on the, on the country. Um, could you talk more about that cost to the individual? Uh, the $8.5 billion to the economy is key, but the human, the human cost, right, to the person. Just, just talk about that a little more. 
Yeah. You know, when we were doing our Closing the Gap study in 2019 with the U.S. Water Alliance, we were traveling around to these communities and interviewing folks, visiting them in their homes, talking to public officials, trying to get an understanding of okay, what this problem really looks like and why it hasn't been taken care of in the richest democracy on earth. Um, and we found out all sorts of interesting things. That 2.2 million number, we found that race is the strongest predictor of whether or not you and your family will have running water in, in 2022. Um, but we kept hearing stories about the, the daily life impacts, and it always went back to money. Families were really feeling this pinch. Um, and at the time, we couldn't quantify that, that economic loss. So as soon as we completed that study, we started this one. We've been working on it for more than two years. Mm-hmm. And um, we really have gone you know, out into the field to collect data, to talk to families, to understand you know, what this problem really looks like. I think the strongest part of this study that we're releasing, uh, it's called draining. It's an economic impact study on water and sanitation access. The strongest part for me and for many people, I think will be the storytelling, you know, for each of these losses, we try to empower someone without running water or sanitation from around the country, from places like Appalachia or the Navajo nation or the central Valley of California to tell a real life story about how something like this happened to them. And, um, you know, one of those stories uh, belongs to a woman named Tori here in West Virginia, where I'm calling in from. Um, and, you know, she collects water from outside her home, from a mountain stream. And she was pregnant with her daughter a few years ago and went to her local library to read parenting books. She was worried about her breast milk. She thought, you know, I don't know if the water I'm collecting from the environment is clean. And I'm worried that that is going to taint my milk and that's going to make my my daughter sick. And it was causing a tremendous amount of acute anxiety and depression. Um, and, you know, like I said, this is causing 71,000 cases uh, per year of mental health conditions. Um, this is also causing diabetes. A lot of the clients that we work with, you know, go to the store to buy bottled water and they end up buying soda either because it's you know, more readily available, it's more aggressively marketed. Sometimes it just seems more valuable for the dollar. Um, and so we see, you know, huge instances of diabetes in these populations, which is leading to um, a high mortality rate too, death from waterborne illness and diabetes, just for folks living without a running, you know, without running water, without a tap or a toilet at home, we're looking at about 600 deaths a year, about two passenger planes full of people falling from the sky. Mm. And again, we're talking about the biggest economy in the world in the year 2022, right? Uh, It's incredible. A little sidebar here. Um, I don't know how long you guys have been calling yourselves a human rights nonprofit. Um, Since day one. Since day one. Okay, I'm sorry I missed that from day one. Uh, (laughs) Obviously very deliberate. It'd be easy to call yourself a water nonprofit, right? Could Could you just talk about that? Because what you just hit on, those personal stories, I think underscores why you're saying you're a human rights nonprofit. Yeah, I think this study does a really good job, actually, of, of illustrating that. If you don't have access to running water or sanitation, it is really difficult for you to live up to your full human potential, yeah. a happy life with security and dignity. You know, without access to water and sanitation, almost every part of your life is impacted. Your ability, like I said, to go to school, 
We're losing, you know, something like 11 million school hours in the U.S. for children a year. And that's impacting their later ability to graduate from high school and college, to get a higher paying job, to contribute to their family's bottom line. And that causes intergenerational impact. So their children are likely to, to earn less and their children's children are likely to earn less, all because they didn't have running water at the beginning of that process. So it's education. It's your job. It's your health. It's your mental health. It's even the intangible things that we couldn't quantify in this study that sometimes are even more important. Like it's the time you get to play with your kids or to help them with their homework. Um, That's kind of like uh, one of the most valuable things in life right there, uh, honestly. (laughs) Time with your family, you know? Um, So what about, you know, you kind of talked about the family, the, the individual. You talked about the big macro economic impact on the country, just the community that these people are in. What's then the, the economic toll on the communities where uh, you know, a number of people don't have water and sanitation? Well, you mentioned the, the sort of ripple effect. So you have the toll that comes from families in that community without water and sanitation being trapped in the cycle of poverty and not producing money to spend in their local economy. And we estimate that that is costing uh, the the national GDP about a billion dollars a year um, in what are called knock-on impacts. Um, So imagine if I, you know, I'm spending a half or a third of my income on, you know, collecting water every month. That's a half or a third of my income I'm not spending at the local grocery store, at the local bookstore. I'm not spending it on my kid's education. I'm not spending it on a vacation. And so that's rippling out and impacting first the local community, then the state and national economies. Um, so this really, it really, you know, it does suck the money first out of the family. Um, and then it doesn't stop there. The damage really continues. Yeah. Well, one of the reasons I, I love your organization is because you guys are solution and action oriented, right? You're out there in these communities dealing with this problem, bringing water and sanitation to people's homes. So I know this report uh, you know, doesn't just drop the problem and walk away. You guys have some recommendations for, for how to start addressing this, for closing the gap, for dealing with this economic uh, impact. Could you talk about those a little bit? Absolutely. I think, you know, the, this report, it can seem like a bummer, but actually the reason we did the report is because it's, it's mostly good news. We also estimated the cost of closing the water gap. And when you compare how much money we're losing to how much money we could potentially gain, um, the U.S. economy stands to gain over $200 billion over the next 50 years if we can close this gap completely. That's a, a five to one return on investment. And I mean, with where the stock market is now and and potentially moving from, well, definitely from a bull market to a bear market, potentially into a recession, you know, we as a nation are really looking for places that we can make investments that not only make people's lives better, but that generate a powerful economic return. And Mm. there's very little that'll generate a five five to one return over the next five years. I mean, over the next 50 years. Um, So this is this is good news. You know, every year that this gap remains open, yes suffering continues, we continue to lose money, but we really have an opportunity now to close it and to create wealth. And so we put a we put an action plan in this report. And I think, you know, some of the elements are to treat this as a crisis, as an emergency, to increase federal funding and to make it more flexible, um, to treat the, the human right to water and sanitation as a human right and recognize that at the federal level and in private institutions like companies and foundations. Um, but definitely the most important 
of all of those recommendations is to dramatically increase federal funding for water and sanitation systems, especially targeted at closing this water gap. Because if we learned anything in this study, it's that the water gap has what we call a wrong pocket a pockets problem in mm -hmm. economics. Meaning there are a lot of people who stand to benefit from closing the water gap. Um, like I said, individual families, their communities, states, national government, but no one benefits enough to be incentivized to make that investment all by themselves. And when you have a problem like that, you need the federal government to come in and lead and guide that investment. And while we're looking at historic investment in infrastructure through the, through the BIL, the bipartisan infrastructure law, that money really was never designed to close. And a lot of these families were left out. I was going to get to that because this was big news in the water sector in the past year, right? Uh, the, the Infrastructure Act and the really, you know, historic level of funding that's going to go out there. Um, and I'm curious as to your analysis, like, you know, where is this going? Where is this flowing? Is it going toward these particular communities and individuals? My sense is not, it's not designed for that. That's kind of what you said. Um, what, what's your reaction to having seen that incredible effort, that incredible legislation, that stack of money, and then still have it not pointed toward this direction? Well, I mean, thank God for that legislation. Hmm. I mean, we, we, we are so behind in infrastructural investment in the U.S. I mean, something like a, you know, a multi-trillion dollar price tag that we have to pay here. And this historic investment in water and sanitation, I think, totaled up to $55 billion, and it's doing really important things, replacing lead lines, making our infrastructure more resilient in the face of climate change, allowing, in some places, that infrastructure to expand and to serve people with access for the first time. But as is so common throughout U.S. history, unfortunately, you know, the, the communities with the least, the most marginalized communities who don't even have taps or toilets at home, you know, weren't really the primary target of the legislation. Mm. And so, you know, most of them won't be served with some really obvious, with some really obvious exceptions, one of them being the amount of uh, money that's headed to native reservations as part of funding to the Indian Health Service. We're really excited about that mm -hmm. at Dig Deep. So it's the, the bipartisan infrastructure law in the end is good news. It's good news for everybody. It's a really important investment that we need to make as a country. But will it go the distance and close this water gap completely? No, we need new and a more targeted investment at the federal level to do that. And it's really it's really not going to be much. Mm. I know last time we spoke, you also talked about there needs to be kind of this wash sector in the U.S., the way that there is in other parts of the world uh, to focus on on these issues. Because like the typical systems at EPA or whatever it might be aren't really doing it. Um, so, you know, it sounds like there needs to be some structural change. There needs to be some financial redirection uh, to try to do this. And the federal government really needs to take the lead on that, basically. Yeah. And, you know, I think the federal government needs to take the lead, but, but someone needs to keep the federal government motivated mm. and accountable to these communities. And, you know, it's tough to work in federal government. I have a lot of friends that do it, <laughs> people I respect tremendously. Uh, but there are an awful lot of problems out there to solve. And the problems that do get solved the fastest are the ones that have coalitions of organizations and community members and research scientists behind them, pushing the federal government forward, encouraging them to innovate, giving them the data they need, sometimes demonstrating the use of things like technology in the field and showing what's possible. And that, that I think, is the promise of a domestic water, sanitation, and hygiene, or wash sector. We see that work in the international community. You know, we've 
we've extended water and sanitation access to hundreds of millions of people over the last 60 years abroad. There's no reason we can't do that here, but it is going to take working together in a unified, organized way. And so we have been, you know, like I, like I said on this podcast, just, you know, just months ago, I'm reaching out to other organizations and bringing them into partnership with us. And I think this report, this economic impact study is a really great example of what's possible when that happens. I mean, you read the report, you probably saw that there are more than 30 organizations that worked on this. Mm. Uh, We took the lead, but we were joined by the American Heart Association, by the code writing organizations like IAPMO. We were joined by RCAP by the Center for Water at UCLA, by, you know, countless others, including international wash experts who, um, mm. who came together and, and built this data. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Um, I mean, lastly, I just kind of want to ask you about awareness. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, this 2.2 million people, the economic impact, the economic return that could be seen. Do you feel like there's any more awareness developing in the public or among decision makers that this scale of problem exists in the U.S.? It's almost been hidden. Yeah? Okay. Yeah, I can can see it changing day over day. I can see it more in the news cycle. I think that's one of the silver linings of COVID, which I, you know, could have done without the pandemic and the terrible human toll it took. But it did shine a light on this issue, especially on tribal reservations for the first time. I was just in and I must have met with six or seven offices on the hillside, on the hills, sort of on the House side and the Senate, um, just to educate them on this issue, share some of this data in advance, you know, arm them with it so that they could take it to their committee meetings and so that they knew what was happening to their constituents. Um, and almost everyone I met with already knew what the issue was, already knew how big it was, already knew it mattered to their constituents. Some of them have even recently introduced legislation to work on it. So um, you know, things were quiet on this front for way too long, but I can see that shifting now. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so people that want to check out this report, go to the dig deep website, check you guys out on social media. I'm sure it's easy to find. Everyone can Google things these days and track it down. It sure will be easy to find, but if you're having trouble, it's, uh, it's live and available at digdeep.org slash draining. Perfect. Draining. Well, George, uh, glad I got to talk to you again so soon. Uh, Awesome stuff you guys do. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. All right, Rob. Great conversation. Absolutely. Well, we're at the end of our show, so the thing we go join us next week for a great show. And remember, everybody, the most important thing that Chris and I want you to do is please help keep our planet blue. Our planet blue. All right, good you night, got everybody. it, everybody. Thanks for tuning good in. Good night. Talk to y'all next week. Bye bye. KCAA Loma Linda, 1050 AM, 106.5 FM, and now 102.3 FM. NBC News Radio, I'm Lisa Taylor, former President Trump's request for a special master to review documents.